in Genesis chapter 1, when the God talks about creation, one of the interesting things that he says about the stars, it says that God created the stars in order to be lights and guides in the sky and also to mark the changing seasons. Uh, and and in, as we continue through the Old Testament, we also see that God has established holy days in his law. It's certain days every year that are supposed to be followed. And so what I'm getting at is it's kind of interesting. We tend to think of the taking record or counting of time. It's kind of something we take for granted. Um, it's almost something that we just assume pragmatically we need to do. But this is a very biblical notion to mark the changing of seasons, to mark the changing of time, to keep a record or a calendar of time as you will. This is mandatory with how God created the universe and how he ordained his law. And, and even though throughout church history there have been debates over what specific calendar to use, uh, there is no doubt that it is biblical to keep track of time. And so that's what this season is all about right now. Right? New Year's and New Year's Eve coming up. We are transitioning into another year in the Western calendar. And so before, I've had just such a wonderful time the last month with Advent and preaching sermons about the incarnation and Christ. And I've really enjoyed that. And while I'm very much looking forward to get back into a sermon series, back into our pastoral epistles and start with the book of Titus, I wanted just to take this one Sunday to preach a New Year's sermon. And my hope is that we'll leave this morning encouraged and excited for the new year. And I think we as Christians need that. And I'll explain why more in a minute. But I'll be honest, I really was racking my head. This is why I don't like topical preaching. Um, because I'm just not creative enough to, to, to randomly pick stuff. And so it's, it's really difficult to, to find a text that really fully addresses this concept of New Year's. Because there's not really, we don't really see that in scripture, right? We don't really have a book dedicated to the passing of time or to the New Year change. And so you kind of have to be creative with it. And so here's what I decided to do. I decided to take texts that I think are commonly preached uh, in the new year and explain to us how sometimes I think those are abused in one of two directions. And so I, I want to clarify what these texts actually mean for us. I want to, perhaps you have been filled with misinformation about these texts to maybe clear that a little bit, but also for us to see that these are applicable to the new year and that these are applicable to us today and how much hope that they can bring us. So in, in, in a certain sense, we're, we're going to be preaching from two separate texts this morning. That's not standard here. That's not how we normally do things, but um, we're going to just do this for New Year. So the first one, and both of these are very popular. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. This is in your Old Testament. This is after the giving of the law, after Deuteronomy. Joshua, the, verse, the first verse that we're going to look at in its context, both of these verses are what I call coffee mug verses. Um, these are verses that you uh, will not have trouble finding on paraphernalia if you need it. These are on t-shirts and calendars and coffee mugs and uh, they're extremely popular in journals, right? If, if, if you have a daughter and you go out to buy her uh, like a journal for Bible study or note taking and you get anything that's girly at all, you're, you're, there's like a 50-50 chance that one of these verses are going to be on every page of that journal. That's, that's just the kind of verses that they are. And so this is the first one we're going to look at. We're going to focus primarily on verse 9, but I want us to see it in context. So we'll begin in the beginning of the chapter. This is Joshua chapter 1. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. 
Joshua chapter 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward, the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that it was written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a promise in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He reminded Joshua earlier that he will never leave him or forsake him. These, these are wonderful promises. I want us to remember what's going on here. Uh, Moses led the people, God's chosen people, out of Egypt. And they were there for generations as slaves in a foreign land. So this is, this is a people group that have really never had a home. And then they go into the wilderness and because of disobedience, both from Moses and from the people, God disciplines them. He punishes them by making that generation die off and not inherit the land that they were supposed to inherit. And so what has happened here is Moses has passed, the disobedient generation has passed, and now their children are being led by the next man up, which is Joshua. And now that the disobedient generation has been disciplined, the new generation is ready to take the land that God promised them. And so this is on the precipice of, of something new, of, of, of new territory they're standing here. And it's interesting, why would God need to command them to be strong and courageous and to not be disobedient? I mean, do you need that much strength just to inherit a blessing? Right? If, if someone bought you a new house and handed you the keys, would you need a big pep talk about, now don't be afraid, well, because we have to remember that they're not just merely inheriting land here. They're taking it. This is not just an empty plot of land. God's enemies dwell here. And if you read through the book of Joshua, the only way they get the land is through warfare. And if you read through the book of Joshua, from human terms, a lot of these armies are armies they were not ready to fight. They were not inheriting the land. They were taking it. And so you can imagine the fear Right? They are stepping, they are literally standing on the precipice of Gentile territory. They are about to go behind enemy lines and fight for their land. And it is in that context that God says, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. Be strong and be courageous. 
Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed because I will be with you wherever you go. That's what they needed to hear before they took the land. That our God goes before us. Now, this promise was made to Joshua. This promise was made to Israel. Is this a promise for us? Hold that thought. And let's turn to our other text I want us to look at. Turn to Jeremiah. We're going to go out of the historical books and into the prophets. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, as you turn there, I'll remind you of the context here. This is well after Israel has inherited their land. But out of uh, their constant disobedience, yet again, God has disciplined them and he has done so through the Babylonian Empire. So Babylon has at this point come in and they have overtaken Israel. They've overtaken the Jews. They've dispersed them. So the Jews are not in their land and they're not an autonomous nation. They're basically slaves again. It's not as bad as Egypt, but it's, it's still not a good situation for them. And so what's happening here is God uses Jeremiah to promise them that this is temporary and that they will be restored and they will go back home. And it's in that, uh, if you would turn to verse 10, and we're going to focus primarily on verse 11, but just for a little bit of context, let's begin in verse 10. God, through Jeremiah, says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for prosperity and not for evil. What a promise. But is it our promise? I want us to see two things. You can see how these texts have some kind of metaphoric, if you will, but some kind of relevance to New Year's, right? I mean, in the first text in Joshua, we have a people that are on the precipice of something new and they don't know what lies ahead. They're about to step into something new, kind of like we're about to. Or this promise of, in, in Jeremiah 29, 11, where, where calamity and evil surrounds them, but they are given hope for a future, Right? These texts are filled with, with courage and hope, a courage, a divine courage and a divine hope that helps take us into new places. So that's why they're, they're preached on New Year's all the time. And what I'm trying to call us to is I want us to avoid, there's two extremes, right? Truth is like this. There's, there's always a ditch on both sides of the road. There's two interpretive ditches that I want us to, to not fall into corporately as a church. And in terms of what do we make of these Texts where God is dealing with Israel in its particular context. What, what do we do with this? In my opinion, just from what I've seen, the most popular way of preaching these texts is a way that I would encourage us not to interpret them. And it's what I call the analogous interpretation. 
And essentially what this looks like is we take the circumstances of of these events and then we take circumstances from our lives and sort of by way of uh, analogy plug them in to these texts. So for example, Joshua 1.9, we have the people of Israel about to step in a new land and take on enemies. And so how is it preached? Well, you might be hoping on God for a job promotion and you're trying to step into that job promotion, but there's people who want to stop you from getting it. But God has promised you that you will overcome them. Right? Like, like you are Israel and the promised land is, 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 is the person you want to marry or the promised land is, is better health because you've been sick or the promised, right? You see, we, we sort of plug and place our life into the, it's, it's an analogous interpretation. We see this all the time like with David and Goliath, right? People say, what are the Goliaths in your life? Right? It's analogy. And that's missing the point of these texts when we do that. It's at best an abuse, or at worst it's abuse. At best it's really just trivializing these texts. I, I played sports in high school. I played sports in college. And guys will write Jeremiah 29, 11 on their cleats, write it on their eye paint, right? Or you go to a graduation party, Christian, you see Jeremiah 29, 11, like on the graduation card or on the cake or something. Jeremiah 29, when God tells people, when God tells us, when God tells Israel, that he has a future for them. This is not a personal promise to me that I'm going to graduate. This is not a personal promise to me that I'm going to get the job promotion that I want. This is not a personal promise to me that I'm going to beat cancer. When God speaks corporately to his people about a corporate future, we are not helping ourselves by thinking that this is a narrow personal promise for some specific narrow circumstance in my personal life. Goliath is not a metaphor for whatever it is that's got you down. The promised land is not a metaphor for whatever you're hoping God for, believing God for is the phrase I hear all the time. That's not what this is about. You can go to Joshua 1, you can go to Jeremiah 20. These are not personal promises to you that you're going to achieve a goal you want to achieve. And in the process, we really don't do God any favors when we do this. Because we go around and we give people something to cling to. You're struggling from cancer and we remind them God's promised you victory over this. And guess what happens? They don't. Sometimes the Goliaths in our life don't die when we throw rocks at their heads. That's the problem. Sometimes you don't get that promotion. Has God been unfaithful? Sometimes you don't get married. Does God lie? He, he, didn't, he actually he didn't have a future for you. I guess that was wrong. You see, these are not meant to be analogies or metaphors for our life. And we don't help ourselves, we don't help the church of God when we think that Joshua's, the promise given to Joshua and Israel that I will be with you and I will never forsake you is a promise to me that I'm going to score the game-winning touchdown. That's not what this is about. And so we see that abuse, that analogous interpretation all the time. That's, that's, that's not true. But here's what we have to be afraid of then. The pendulum sometimes swings too far the other way. And then the, the, the abuse of this text on the other side looks like this. Well, yeah, you're right. This isn't, about, this isn't about graduation or job promotions or marriage or having children or overcoming cancer. It's not about those things. This was given to Israel. It was given to Joshua. It was given to the people of Israel. It wasn't given to you. It has nothing to do with you. 
Right? This is Old Testament, Israel's promises. Right? This is about inheriting a land. It's about the, the promised land and Babylon and the Canaanites and the Hittites. This has nothing to do with us. It's just not about us. These are not our promises. For example, I'm reading one book where the author is trying to argue this very thing, speaking of the, the promise in Joshua 1.5 and in 1.9 that I will be with you, I will never forsake you. He says, but who is the you of this text? And then quoting Jeremiah, he says, for, for I know the plans I have for you. Who's the you? Well, it's certainly not you. That's who. Right? It's a complete dislocation. This has nothing to do with you. This is about Israel and Babylon. This is about Israel and the Canaanites. This has nothing to do with you. Well, I'd submit to you that that is a grave mistake to make as well. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. The author of Hebrews is ending his letter the way a lot of New Testament letters end, which is sort of just, just a, a shotgun scatter of truths to take with you. Right? It's, it's very hard to, to, to tie all these things into a context because the author of Hebrews is basically ending by just giving us a bunch of commandments. All right? He's, he says in verse 1 to show hospitality. He says in verse 3 to pray for the persecuted church. He says in verse 4 to hold the marriage bed in honor to avoid sexual immorality. Right? He's just kind of giving us these important obediences and truths that we need to cling to. And notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So he gives us this little nugget about contentment. Don't be greedy. Don't chase. Don't pursue money. You, you, you have every reason to be content with what you have. Your circumstances right now, be content in those. Now, what's the foundation? What's the grounding for that? Right? I think all of us would admit there's times in my life where I don't want to be content. So what do I have to justify this call to contentment? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you had. For he has said, and I quote, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, and I quote, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'm just kind of curious, who in here's Bible for that first quotation, I will never leave you or forsake you, does your Bible have a little letter, a little mark that tells you what he's quoting from? What does that say? Eight. Right, well, what's, it, what's, the, what's it quoting from? What, what's he quoting from? Does your Bible tell you? Say that again, nice and loud, Eva. Joshua 1.5. So here is the author of Hebrews preaching to a new covenant people. Not old covenant Israel. Not a people who are trying to take the land from Canaan. This is a new covenant people living in the days after Jesus Christ. There's even Gentiles probably among this group of people. He's preaching to new covenant Christians who have new scripture, new revelation, a new covenant. And yet he takes what God said to those Israelites so many years back in a context we're not currently living in, and he says, this is your promise. This is yours. Every Christian in the New Testament era, in New Covenant living, every Christian has every right to say, from Joshua 1, the Lord will never forsake me. 
Why? Because Joshua told me so. You see, although we need to avoid sort of manipulating the text by making it promise me earthly things that it doesn't promise me, we also want to avoid abusing the text by saying, this is not God's promise to me. Yes, it is. He will never leave you or forsake you. He does have a future for you. And so here's how I think we can sort of find the balance here. These promises are about a corporate people for a corporate future. And so in other words, what we are taking from Jeremiah 29, what we take from Joshua 1 is this. In the same way that in the Old Testament, God had a covenant people, and even when their lives seemed in total disarray, whether they were confused and they didn't know what the future held, or whether everything was falling apart around them, God reminded them, I'm your God, you're my covenant people, I have a relationship with you, I have a covenant with you, and I will see to it that I will bring it to an end, that I will fulfill my promises and I will be good to you, as my covenant people. These are texts that remind us of God's covenant faithfulness to his covenant people. And so what we need to remember in these texts is not necessarily that God promises you a job promotion. But we do need to remember what Romans chapter 8 says, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. That he has this grand plan that he is bringing all individual Christians and all local churches into for the flourishing and blessing of his people and ultimately of the whole world. God has promised to his covenant people, and if you're in Christ today, that's you. If you believe on Jesus, that's you. And he has promised to you, I will be with you and I will never forsake you. And, and the author of Hebrews tells us that's why you can be content. So notice, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us, God is with me, he will never forsake me, therefore I will get everything I want. He says the exact opposite. He says you might get nothing you want. But you can still be content. Paul says in the book of Philippians, I have learned to abound and I have learned to live with little. I have learned in all circumstances to be content, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not a promise to, I hear the word a lot as, as I listen to other sermons, I hear this word breakthrough. It's like a buzzword in church. Praying on God for a breakthrough, for your breakthrough. These are not promises for a personal breakthrough of any kind. But these are promises for a corporate breakthrough. That in other words, the people of God will never be snuffed out. The gospel is going to continue to work. The church is going to continue to grow. And God is going to continue to use his sovereign providential care to bring his church into blessing. And sometimes that blessing looks like sanctification. And sometimes sanctification requires suffering. So in other words, here's how I want us to sort of understand this. I am not a prophet and I'm not the son of a prophet. I have no idea what 2020 looks like. I cannot promise you more money. I can't promise you better health. I can't promise you children. I can't promise all your relationships will be reconciled. I can't promise that North Korea is going to stop killing Christians. 
can't promise that China's gonna stop imprisoning Christians. I can't promise these things. I have no idea what 2020 looks like. It might be the best year of your life. You might get more money. You might have children. You might reconcile with friends. This, 2020 might be the best year of your life. It also might be the worst year of your life. It might bring death and not life. Every one of us, we've mentioned this before, tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. I'm talking about the new year, but it's a, Lord forbid, I hope not, but it's a possibility that someone in this room won't even make it into 2020. You see, these are not promises to know the future. Jeremiah 29, Joshua 1, these are not promises that everything in 2020 is going to go well. And that if it doesn't go well, it must be because of your lack of faith. But they are promises that this, whether they go well or they don't go well, we have a God who personally is with us, who's using those circumstances for our good, who's sanctifying us and conforming us more to the image of Christ. That's the personal promise. And then there's a corporate element too. Whether 2020 goes well for Redeemer Christian Fellowship or not, whether it goes well for your family or not, we know corporately God has a plan for his covenant people. In other words, we don't get to interpret our circumstances and say, everything is wrong, we ought to be filled with fear. God says, fear not, be courageous. Because I know the plans I have for my corporate people. And here's why I think we as Christians need to hear this so much. Because I... I'm sorry if I push on your toes here a little bit, but I, I just have to step on some toes. I, I just feel as if Christians especially carry with them an eschatological pessimism. What I mean by that is we're almost convinced that everything is going wrong and it's going to continue to go wrong and that this world, like we're just dying to get out of here. Now, don't get me wrong, I want Jesus to come back. Maranatha, I, I would love for him to come back at any moment. But folks, we don't have to be dying to get out of this place. Why? I know the plans I have for you. Plans for well-being, not for evil. You see, 2020 is an election year. And it's amazing how many people in this country are acting as if whoever gets elected is going to ruin their lives. Like we are, we are so afraid of what might happen to America next year. I mean, for goodness sake, it's like no one's happy with our leadership and, and there's corruption all over the place and all over the world. I mean, we're hearing of North Korea and China and the Middle East and it just everything seems like it's falling apart. What hope do we have? Should we not be pessimistic and scared of the future? Well, what did God promise us? Be strong and courageous. You see, around Thanksgiving time, I saw a quote that I loved where it said, Thanksgiving is not what we fight for, it's what we fight with. We as Christians ought to lead the way in our culture in terms of optimism and hope and gratitude. Because what does the text say? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's our attitude next year. Some man or some woman is going to be put in president next year. But the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. 
North Korea is going to be North Korea. Uh, Secularism is going to be secularism. Evolution is going to be taught in schools. I will never leave you or forsake you. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for well-being and not for evil. You see, all around us, just like the Jews who were overcome by Babylon, everywhere they looked, it was nothing but wickedness. God's people are losing, right? We can't win the schools. We can't win the culture. We can't win the world. Isn't now the time to be afraid? And God stepped into that moment during Babylonian persecution. He said, now is not the time to be afraid. So when we look at our own world around us, when we look at the rising secularism in our nation, when we look at the persecution of Christians, when we look at the state of politics, we look at all these things and we're tempted to fear and we're tempted to feel abandoned, that's when these promises break through that darkness and God says, I have not forsaken you. I'm still in control. I still have plans for you. Let's show the world what true hope looks like. Let's show Roswell that I have a God who is providentially working out a plan for the good of his church and for my personal benefit. That doesn't always mean I get what I want, but it means that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Even my persecution, even the evil that happens to me, even my suffering. Because you see, we have to ask this question, what good is it to have God with me if it doesn't guarantee certain results? Right, that's a fair question to ask, right? If, if, if there's a person who isn't a believer and they're just sort of going through life and, and what does 2020 look like for them? Well, we don't know. It could be bad or it could be good. But then we have these Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God with them and all these promises from God and God is on their side. He will never forsake them. So what does their future look like? It could be bad, could be good. Right, so, so, so what is it, what's the practical difference between God forsaking me and God not forsaking me? If, if you're telling me anything can happen next year, then what good is it to have God on my side? If he's not promising me a better job, if he's not promising me health, if he's not promising me all these personal victories and breakthroughs, then what good is it to have God on my side? But that's where we see the spiritual nature and the spiritual lens we have to interpret these things to. Because what that tells us is that what's unique about having God on your side is that when you do hit trials, when you do hit unfamiliar territory, that one, God will give you the strength and the perseverance and the endurance you need to overcome these things. And two, that God will use them ultimately to shape you and mold you into the image of Christ. That's the good it means to have God on your side. He will persevere you, he will protect you, and he will transform you. That's what we get to say. That's what we get to cling to. And that's why I can say, who shall I fear? What can man do to me? God has promised to be good to us. He's promised to be good to his people. And sometimes life hurts. But God is still being good to us, even in those times. So here's what I can prophesy about 2020. The Lord will be with us. He will not abandon us. He will be faithful to his people. He will bless us, and when curses come, when evil comes, he will use that for our good, for our sanctification, for the growth of the church. Persecution was really heavy in the first century, and the church only multiplied. Persecution is really heavy in China right now. And they say the underground church in China is growing in measures that we can't even comprehend. Persecution won't stop it. What can man do to us? Legislation won't stop it. 
Rome did not legislate on behalf of Christians for a very long time. Didn't stop them. Didn't stop God. God has plans for his people. God has plans for his church. So I don't know what 2020 looks like, but I know that we can look at the darkness of 2020 and be glad. And we can feast. And we can celebrate. And we can be hopeful because we know the plans that God has for us. Plans not to harm us. Not for evil, but for well-being. And we know that no matter what 2020 brings, he will be with us. So it's in the spirit of a providential, good, and faithful God that I wish you have a happy new year. Be excited for 2020. Be excited for what God is doing in the world. In Matthew 16, when he established his church, he said, I will build my church and the gates of death will never prevail against it. He promised a victorious church. He promises us victory to the end of the ages. So be excited, be glad, and when persecution comes, remember, my God has not forsaken me in this moment. He has not forsook me in my hurt. He has not forsook me in my discouragements. He is with me. He is using this for my good. He has plans for me. Jeremiah 29 and Joshua 1, they belong to you. Those are your promises of a faithful covenant God 